liberal, progressive politics, just like progressive Christianity, progressive politics rejects the sinfulness, the innate sinfulness of humankind. uh, And as a result, uh, it's you, they think that utopia is possible. Well, Mm -hmm. utopia is only possible uh, in any way, shape or form if, if people are in some sense good. Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast, where we equip Christians to identify the core beliefs of historic Christianity, discern its counterfeits, and then proclaim the gospel with clarity, kindness, and truth. And today we're going to be talking about human goodness or inherent sinfulness. Are humans born good and then become corrupted by their environment, or are they born inherently sinful, thus corrupting their environment? So this idea of original sin or inherent sinfulness, is this something Christians should be rethinking? My guest today is going to help us unpack these ideas as we ask the question, are humans inherently good? Take a moment and subscribe. Click the bell icon to be notified every time we release a new video because we have some great conversations coming up that you're not going to want to miss. But let's get into today's discussion with my guest, Clay Jones, who is a visiting scholar for the MA in Christian Apologetics at Talbot Seminary. And he's the chairman of the board of Ratio Christi, which is a university apologetics ministry. Clay is the author of two books, one which we've actually done podcasts on both these books, so you can go back in the archives and check those out. Why Does God Allow Evil? Compelling Answers to Life's Toughest Questions, and Immortal, How the Fear of Death Drives Us, and What We Can Do About It. Clay, so glad to have you back on the show. We're going to talk about the deep topic of original sin, inherent sinfulness. This is something that's right in your wheelhouse, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It really is. Uh, Because when I was writing the book on why does God allow evil, I started studying genocide, and I thought, oh, I'll just study it a little bit. And then it turns out I've been really studying it for the last 25 years. And uh, and genocide informs us a lot about the nature of humankind. So it's really, you know, it's really a huge issue. It is, and it's really one of the doctrines that's being denied almost universally across the board in the movement of progressive Christianity, which is what I interact with quite a bit here on the podcast and in my written materials. And so just to lay the foundation and get us started, I pulled a paragraph from a blog post that I found on progressivechristianity.org about this very topic, just to give people an idea of what we're going to be talking about and how this is relevant to Christian doctrine, how it's relevant to the gospel. This is what the progressive Christian author wrote, the title of the article is Moving Beyond Doctrines of Original Sin, the Fall, and maybe even the Doctrine of Grace. That's the title of the article. And then I wanted to give this all in context. So this is a bit of an extended paragraph here, but I want us to really understand what is being denied and what is being claimed in uh, progressive Christianity, which really these are things that are going to be denied and also claimed by the secular humanistic world as well. And so here's the excerpt from the article. It says, humanity is not inherently evil or sinful or broken. Creation has been groaning for billions of years so that we might evolve. 
Creation continues to groan as we continue to evolve into all that we can be. I'm not saying that humanity is not capable of evil or that we are not capable of sin or that there are parts of us that are not broken. I'm not saying we are perfect. I am saying that we are incomplete and out of our incompleteness, evil, sin, and brokenness can emerge. But we are fearfully and wonderfully made, capable of great goodness, and innately wired to a pull toward cooperation. We have a role to play in the ongoing evolution of our species. Competition, violence, and the survival of the fittest are not the keys to our evolution. Cooperation and compassion are the keys to our evolution into a more complete species. We have a role to play in determining how and what we involve, evolve into. All that potential is entrusted to us. And so that's from progressivechristianity.org. There's a lot in there, Clay, because I think that uh, in laying the foundation for this, we're going to talk about what is this doctrine of original sin. We'll probably start there. But just for our viewers and listeners, notice some of the foundational things lying underneath these views. There's an assumption of Dar a Darwinian type of evolution. You have to get rid of a historical Adam and Eve to get rid of the fall, to get rid of inherent sinfulness. So I'm sure we'll get into some of that. Um, but I want to acknowledge that when progressives are denying original sin, they're not denying that we actually commit sins, but they're denying that there's this inherent sinfulness. So Clay, what is original sin? What's the most simple way you could identify that for us? Well, after Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, God kicked them out of the garden and they lost their fellowship that they had with the Lord. Uh, and so as a result, they're beings on their own. And for me, uh, what original sin is, is it's about selfishness, is that you, when you real, when you think I'm a creature in my own right, uh, that doesn't need the creator necessarily, uh, except maybe to bring rain and, and snow, uh, but I don't need the creator, but I'm a creature in my own right. In fact, as a creature in my own right, I want to do things my way. And so really, it's what I think of original sin as being, what the result of it is, is man out of relationship, proper relationship with God, and then humankind can become very, very selfish. Uh, and they are innately, uh, humans are innately selfish. And so that's, for me, that's a, it, roughly a little bit of an explanation of what original sin is about. It's that humans are innately selfish. They, they want their own way. And it's funny to me to hear anybody say anything else because I don't understand. Put, by, put Christianity aside and try to explain to me that people are not innately selfish. I don't think you can. People are innately mm -hmm. selfish. Yeah, I think every parent knows this, which we're going to get into in a little while. But let's start with this Genesis narrative, because what a lot of people will appeal to is they'll go back to Genesis 1, and I'll just read starting in verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Uh, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing. So, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And then it goes on to describe God saying that he beheld what uh, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And so often what I'll hear people say is, you know, we got to get rid of this idea uh, of original sin and, and even the fall in this inherent sinfulness, because what we read in Genesis is that God called it good. So what might be a good response to that um, just as we get into this discussion? 
Well, first I'd say they need to read the next two chapters <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, because human humans are out of relationship with God and, and uh, that's just all there is to it. Just, I mean, you can't just pick what verses, you know, I mean, that's the fallacy of special pleading. I'll only pick those verses that agree with what I want to believe. Well, that's, that's actually a, a fallacy of special pleading and, and you need to keep reading. Uh, you either take the Bible or you don't, but if you're going to just go, well, uh, I'll, I'll take these verses and because they support my point of view, but I'm going to reject these other verses because they don't. Well, that's dumb. Yeah, that's the official Professor Lee Scarlerly uh, that's right. analysis. That's, how that's just it. dumb. <laughs> <laughs> so why do you think so many people hate the idea of original sin or what we're calling innate um, human selfishness? Why is this so it, – It's it really just seems to be something that is repulsive to people, especially oh. now. When you go around oh, saying you're a sinner, ugh, it's like there's this recoiling that you can almost yeah. visibly see. Well, yeah, it's so true. And and there's several there's several reasons. The first is it's anti-self-esteem. And you and and so as a matter of fact, the founder, Nathaniel Brannan of the self-esteem movement, uh, along with Ayn Rand, uh, was he says there's no more terrible doctrine than original sin to believe that humans are somehow born bad. Uh, and so it's anti-self-esteem. It's interesting though to try and find outside the Bible. How, why anybody should value themselves at all. If there is no God and there is no, you know, I mean, why should you value yourself at all? The self-esteem movement says, well, you're unique. Everybody's unique. Uniqueness does not impart value. Uh, there's no two dog do's steaming, or as J.P. Moreland would put it, there's no two steaming piles of dog do that are exactly alike. They're unique. Each one of them is unique. That doesn't impart value. Just because something is unique doesn't give it value. Um, and be, man, of course, wants to doesn't want to believe that there's a God that they need to be saved by. And so as a result, they're in a situation where they're going, well, wait, if I'm not really a good person, then that that's bad. And then uh, this leads to government becomes their God. Uh, and And because if there's no God to save us, and I'm just talking, I'm not talking so much about progressive Christians here. I'm just talking about the average non-Christian. If there's no God to save us, then we have to save ourselves. But if we're not innately good, then how are we going to do that? How are we going to accomplish this? Because liberal, poli progressive politics, just like progressive Christianity, progressive politics rejects the sinfulness, the innate sinfulness of humankind. Uh, and as a result, uh, it's you. They think that utopia is possible. Well, mm -hmm. utopia is only possible uh, in any way, shape, or form if if people are in some sense good. And so th this just doesn't. You know, I mean, you remember John Lennon's song. Imagine, you know, imagine yeah. all the people living in harmony. There's no heaven above or hell below, or just you know having a great time. Well, you have to believe that humans are basically good to do that, and and it's just. Anyway, it, that's yeah. just simply not. I've imagined true. it, and it sounds horrifying to me. It does sound horrifying. <laughs> so we. And I'm we glad just, you said that. Let me just add one yeah, quick yeah, comment because we'll talk about this later. But it's horrifying, and 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 it's one of the reasons that people, even outside of God, are not innately good because they know they're going to die, and there's no God to save them, and they know they're going to die, and that scares them, and so that further increases their their hugely, you know, their their self interest. Uh, and so anyway, yeah, that's, yeah. A, it's a huge issue. I think it sounds terrible too. It's horrifying. 
Yeah, it just it sounds like the worst thing ever. But I a couple months ago we did a two-part series on what we called the theology of politics. We were just talking about how does what a Christian believes about issues like this, what particularly what we think about God and what God has said about what kind of a thing we are, how that is going to inform the way we engage politically, the way we think politically. And one of the things that really stood out to me, we had our guests Jeff Myers and Oz Guinness on to talk about these issues, and they both made the point that at the bottom of uh, really some bad political ideas is this idea that humans are basically good. Because if you think humans are basically good, but you see that obviously the world is messed up. It has to be the the institutions or the structures or, or something like that that are corrupting humans and not the other way around. Right. Well, that will lead you down two dramatically different paths as far as how yes. you're going to think about politics. So uh, how does the rejection of innate human selfishness affect the policies of progressive, like in, in politics? Yeah, it, well, hugely. And uh, I'm afraid that the newer, the later generations don't remember the Cold War, Cold War, the Cold War very much. But during the Cold War, what was going on is, is, is you had the 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 liberals, the progressive politicians, hippies, and and yeah, I was alive during the hippie hippie age, and and listening to your father's music, by the way. Uh, but uh, anyway, I was uh, I was alive then, and and the thing about the Cold War, what what they the the peace symbol. You know, with a line like this and like this, and then the circle around. That's yeah. not very good to do that on. But anyway, uh, <laughs> the peace symbol stands for the semaphore. The semaphore ND with the flags. It's it's the line down like this, and then if you had your hands out to the sides, that's that's for ND, and it stands for nuclear disarmament. And uh, sometimes oh, wow. when I pe- see people wearing a s- peace symbol, I said, oh, I didn't know you were for unilateral nuclear disarmament. <laughs> and by the way, they were for unilateral nuclear disarmament. And what that was is, is we're the only reason that the Soviet Union has H-bombs is because we're scaring them. And if we gave up all of our bombs, then the Soviet Union would give up all of their bombs. Well, that's, I mean, that's got to be one of the stupidest notions ever. But see, that's, that's what it led to is this Nuclear disarmament, and they, they meant unilateral. In other words, we're just going to get rid of all our nuclear weapons, and when we do that, we're going to have peace. Well, mm. that's that's crazy town. Not And then gun control, right? What you hear, and the trouble we have with on when you watch Congress is, the trouble is, is you're watching them debate the symptom of their view. You don't watch them debate the underlying philosophy, which is really what we're talking about today. So if you believe that humans are innately selfish, uh, and, and that they're not good or born tabula rasa or blank slates that the environment writes on. But most people, the liberals tend to believe that you're born tabula rasa, blank slate, or you're born maybe with even a good inclination. Thus, when, when it comes to guns, it can't be, it can't be the fact that the people are somehow bad. It's the gun's fault. It's the environment's fault. It's not their fault. And this is what we're seeing all over when it comes to these very liberal DAs letting people out because it's not their fault. It's the environment's fault. The environment is evil because why? These are good folks. If they weren't raised in a bad environment, they wouldn't do these things. Uh, and so when it comes to welfare, it's the same thing. Now, I'm I'm not against welfare. I think sometimes people really are down on their luck and they do need support. I'm not opposed to welfare. Um, 
And but but when it comes to welfare, it's like, well, of course, these people would be working very hard if we just gave them the opportunity. It's not their fault. Everyone would be working hard. That's not true. And socialism and communism, too, are the same kind of thing that that we could actually, you know, um, I've got a blog on Marxism. If anybody goes to ClayJones.net, I've got a blog on why Marxism will always fail. And it will always fail because it believes in the innate goodness of humankind, or at least that they're tabula rasa at the very least, because otherwise, you know, I mean, in fact, Marx summed it up once in a sentence, summed up communism as he says, the abolition of private property, and there's not going to be any private property. That didn't work. It was a failure because people like their stuff. Yeah. And uh, I mean, and so all of these things, the reason we hear liberal politicians, uh, progressive politicians taking these positions is because they believe that humans are either born tabula rasa or born good. Because otherwise, if that's not true, in fact, if you want to change a progressive politician into a conservative, convince them that humans are not basically good. And you're, you're already, you're three quarters of the way there because everything else falls apart. Mm. So there seems to be sort of three views about how people are born. There's the idea that people are born inherently sinful. There's the idea that people are born inherently good. And then there's this middle view that you're, that's uh, tabula rasa. Is, is that, does that go back to Freud? Is that where that can be traced back to that blank slate? Wow. That's a great question. And I don't, I don't know. I've never okay. thought about. It. I've never looked up who 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 coined the phrase. But my memory uh, I, says I, that, but I could be wrong. That that's a Freud thing. Yeah, it's a great question. I wish I knew the answer to it. Well, but, good. People um, can look it up. You know, that's, that's right. They can <laughs> because no, it's yeah, uh, yeah. But see, then either whether whether they're good or whether they're born tabula rasa, either way, then it's the environment's fault always. Right. So yeah. we have to fix the environment. It's not their fault. It's not you know the. I mean, I was surprised. You you remember, I don't remember what city was in the Northeast, but this guy that drove this van and just knocked all these people uh, down and killed a lot of people as he was just running his van. And people actually said, you know, I mean, that we have a, you know, I, I, they blamed the van. Uh, and some, <sighs> some people blamed the van, you know, oh. I mean, and, and uh, I mean, this is, this is the nonsense that yeah. you run into with this. Well, in progressive Christianity, there's going to be theological beliefs that that follow. It, really, the foundation, I think, of progressive Christian theology is this uh, original, you know, this rejection of original sin. Or even, you know, sometimes I don't even like using that phrase because then people can quibble over the Eastern Church versus the Western Church. Everybody throughout history has at least affirmed that humans ha something is wrong with us, right? We have this inherent sinfulness, um, and so I. But but I think building them on that foundation. You have a nearly universal in progressive Christianity rejection of uh, penal substitutionary atonement. In most cases, most progressives will even say they deny substitutionary atonement. The ones who say they affirm it, it doesn't have any meaningful definition of substitutionary atonement without, any, without a sense of punishment, in my view. So that's out the window. And then you also have this rejection of uh, a, a place of punishment called hell. And of course, it would be the rejection of an eternal place of punishment. So what, what do you think the rejection of this innate human selfishness can affect other doctrines uh, of progressive Christians, especially these two? And, and how might that build on that beginning place? Well, if you take away the fact that people are, as the scripture teaches, innately selfish, uh, then 
you, you don't need, I think the, I think that you hit the biggest one is, well, why does Jesus need to die then? Uh, and then you hear this divine child abuse, the father having his son die. Uh, and because people aren't that bad. Uh, sure, they do some bad things. And the environment certainly has caused some people to do some very bad things, but people aren't that bad. Uh, and so uh, when it comes to sin, then sin is looked at, it, it, sin becomes to be less significant because it's just a matter of what well, he made some wrong choices. Not that he's really very evil and, you know, he's just made some wrong choices. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, Ted Bundy, who murdered all these, raped and murdered all these women, I mean, but they would just say, well, see, uh, yes, certain conditions arose that caused him to be that way. Well, th that's true. Of course, that's true. Certain di things did influence him to be that way, but it's not, but he wasn't a good person in any sense. Uh, and I mean, but anyway, so, but this just, it, you end up minimizing the significance of sin and, and our standing before God, then we don't need him to die for us. And uh, uh, like, as you pointed out to eternal punishment, well, if you think people going to hell are going to, are, are basically good folks, Mm -hmm. That's just wrong. I would agree. Right. If I thought yeah. the average person going to hell was basically a good person uh, or, you know, I mean, or became bad because it was written on by them, on, by the environment on them. Um, well, yeah, I would think hell would be really terrible too, but they're not good. Yeah. I think we fail to grasp that often. Um, and also I think we fail to grasp it because sadly, I think many Christians might not be really engaging with the biblical data on all of this stuff. I have a yeah. talk that I do at women's conferences where I go into what a lot of the scriptures have to say about sort of the default position that humans find ourselves in. And often I can feel the tension in the room and I'll even have to pause for a moment and be like, let's let's check in. Are we all okay right now? Because this is so radically different than the messages we're receiving from culture that want to tell us, hey, you're perfect just as you are. You need That's to right. dig down inside your soul and unleash your inner goddess because she's what's going to be the, the saving you know, force in your world and in the world around you. You need to realize that you are good and you can trust all your instincts and you should follow your heart and all of the... I mean, this is just... In everything. And yes. and I wonder if you could walk us through maybe some of that biblical data. And I'll just tell everybody, just, you know, put a seatbelt on, put on your safety belt, because if you're not used to hearing some of this, it might sound a little shocking, but it's it's what the Bible says. That's right. And I think the trouble is, is a lot of Christians, they read a passage that they don't they don't like, and they go, well, whatever that's about. And they just read through it quickly without mm. really thinking about it. And by the way, another way that this affects Christianity is, or affects your relationship with God is people say, you hear it all the time on reality. Jeannie and I like to watch some reality television. Uh, and, and you hear it all the time. People go, my, my, my mom's looking down on me or my brother mm. who, uh, just died three years ago. He's looking down on me. He's seeing me right now. And what they've, what's happened is, is they've begun to believe that salvation is of course, good people deserve to be saved. So of course, if there is any kind of a God, of course, I'm going to be saved. But, Here's what the scripture says in Ephesians chapter two. Here's for me, one of the most important passages on this in Ephesians chapter two, uh, verses one through three says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among 
whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were, listen to these words, and were by nature, and were by nature, objects of wrath, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. By nature, you're an object of wrath because you're not a good person. And so there's there's one, another passage, of course, and I'm going to just hopscotch around a little bit in Romans chapter three. It says, none is righteous. No, not one. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. They use their tongues to deceive. Their mouth is full of cursing uh, and bitterness, and their feet are swift to shed blood. That's what it says about humankind. Uh, humans, the Bible's proclamation about humankind is humans are not good. And people can go, oh, that's just not true. That's not true. But anyway, that's what the scripture says. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to call yourself a Christian, again, don't commit the fallacy of special pleading and just simply get rid of any verse that you don't agree with. But the verses we agree with, oh yeah, we'll keep those. Right. Yeah. And I'm even looking for this verse where Jesus, it's Matthew 15, 19, where Jesus says, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, slander. Jesus is saying this is, I mean, that's what's coming out of the hearts of human beings. And of course, there's all kinds of uh, passages from the Old Testament that tell us our hearts are, just, are deceitful and, and wicked. And uh, I, I just think that when we don't engage with everything the Bible has to say about us, then we're going to miss a major point because it's true that the Bible says that every human being has been made in the image and likeness of God. And I think uh, most theologians would sum that up as saying that, and because of that, we have inherent value and dignity and worth, of course, but that image has become distorted through sin. And that's the point you made earlier. You got to keep reading because the image of God is not lost. It is still there, but it's distorted. We have this sin problem that is really the, the problem at the heart of every single human being. And if we skip that part, then a lot of the Bible is going to sound just really super mean to us, I think. Well, right. It, because if you think people are good, you end up with, why is God mad all the time? It seems mm. like God's always mad. And so and we discussed this when we talked about my book, Why Does God Allow Evil? back in the day. Uh, why is God mad all the time? But if you understand the depths of human sinfulness, you go, you know, God's really patient. Uh, because mm -hmm. uh, anyway, and he's, by the way, he is going to come and judge the world of sin, whether you believe in that or not. And right. but God is this, but you know, it's going to be interesting. I know we're going to talk about this in a minute. That's interesting to me because you can't defend people being born good or tabula rasa, even without the, uh, you know, I mean, you can't defend it from a humanistic, from a secular right. point of view. We'll get into that in a minute. Well, that's what I was going to, I was going to go to that next because <clears throat> that's the thing to me that is so s astonishing about people who might say that, no, we're not inherently sinful or evil or whatever they want to say. I just don't know how you can't use your common sense, do a cursory reading of world history, or even just look around or check your Facebook newsfeed or become a parent to know that humans are born, something, whatever language people want to use for it, how anybody could look out into the world just with your senses and know that there's something really wrong with human beings. And so maybe talk about that a bit. We're just putting, we, you know, we talked a little bit about what the Bible has to say, but what the Bible says really confirms what we can just see when we look out into the world. Talk about that, the common sense case, I think. You might call it. Yeah. Well, you know, first of all, let's take Darwinism. Survival of the fittest. 
and people want to survive. People want to go on. That doesn't sound like uh, being born innately good. If it if it Darwinism is saying survival of the fittest, I had I've had people say, well, we don't get our morality from Darwin, and I reply to them, okay, that's fine, but where do you get it? Uh, because from if we look at just Darwin and the survival of the fittest, it's a dog eat dog eat other dog world. That's what's going on. And then to say. Well, we we've come from these animals, but we're not like them in that way. Based on what? Uh, based on <laughs> what are you basing that on? That you're not just simply you know out to survive. That I want my family and my tribe. See, because people take care of their families, they'll say, "Oh, well, see, they're good people." And and the trouble with that is, is they're ta- when you take care when I take care of my family, I'm taking care of what's mine. And not only that, I'm taking care of my, my progeny and, and my symbolic immortality project. And so, uh, you know, people say, well, yeah, but babies are good. No, they're not. Babies yeah. are not good. And if you want to see this, put two babies on the floor next to each other and give them only one toy <laughs> and see how long uh, they'll, they'll be good. And, and be, ch- Babies aren't good, uh, and if they don't do real harm, it's as Augustine said, it's for, it's for a lack of ability, not a lack of will to do harm. Mm. And so, um, and then genocide examples. One of the things that was most amazing to me and makes me puts me in a good position to talk about this is the fact that uh, in my book on evil, uh, I went well. As I say, I started to study genocide. And for some reason, I just, and I started to study it because I didn't want anybody to disqualify me as going, well, you really haven't looked deeply at human evil when you're writing a book on the problem of evil. But what happened was, is I started reading more and more and more and more and more. And there comes a point where you go, humans are not good. Um, and I mean, it's not just the Holocaust. Uh, over 20 million people, that's a very conservative number, were killed in, by the Soviet Union or died in the camps. Over 20 million from 1917 to 1989. Mao killed well over 20 million people, uh, killed them directly or they died in the camps. Well over 20 million people. And the Khmer Rouge uh, killed, out of a total population of only 5 million people, killed about 2 million people out of a total population of only 5 million people. And, you know, and I go through one genocide after another. People are not good. And it's interesting to me. This is one of the most fascinating points to me was, is that genocide researchers and, let me start over, every genocide researcher I know, every single one of them to a person agrees that it's the average member of a population that commits genocide, the average ordinary member of a population that commits genocide. And not only that, every genocide victim I've ever read, like Ellie Wiesel or Alexander Solzhenitsyn and and people like this, they all agree that it's the average ordinary member of a population that commits genocide. And I want, this is, I've got a couple of quotes here that I wanted to give this one's just a little long, but it's by historian George Cran and psychologist Leon Rapoport. And what they write is in their book on the Holocaust, they said, what remains is a central deadening sense of despair over the human species. Where can one find an affirmative meaning in life if human beings can do such things? If um, if one stays at the, keeps at the Holocaust long enough, sooner or later, the ultimate truth begins to reveal itself 
one knows finally that one might do it or be done to. If it could happen on such a massive scale elsewhere, it can happen anywhere. It's all within the range of human possibility. So notice these genocide researchers say, where can one find an affirmative meaning in life if human beings can do such things? Uh, Hannah Arndt, who wrote the book, a uh, famous anthropologist, wrote the book Eichmann in Jerusalem, a report on the banality of evil when they captured the Jews, the, the, the Israelites, oh, Israelites, the Israel, Israelis captured Adolf Eichmann in Argentina. They brought him back to trial, stand trial in Jerusalem. Hannah Arndt went and watched it. And this is what she says in her, concludes her book, uh, Eichmann in Jerusalem, a report on the banality of evil. She says the main trouble with Eichmann was that there were so many like him, neither perverted nor sadistic, that they were and still are terribly and terrifyingly normal. I've assigned to my classes uh, for years, the book, Ordinary Men, here's the subtitle, Pol Reserve Police Battalion 101 and the Final Solution in Poland. And Christopher Browning says, I could have been the killer or the evader. Both were human. Uh, Harold Welzer, sociologist, he says, we're left then when the most discomforting of all realities, ordinary, normal people committing acts of extraordinary evil. This reality is difficult to admit, to understand, to absorb. As we look at the perpetrators of genocide and mass killing, we no longer need to ask who these people are. We know who they are. They are you and I. Um, I'll just give one more. Um well, I, I, let me switch. I, I could keep giving them on, on genocide researchers, but listen to this. Genocide researchers always conclude that ordinary people are not good. They don't, they don't come away, oh, ordinary people, they couldn't do genocide. No, they all think they could do genocide. In fact, Ellie Wiesel, this is also true for genocide survivors, Ellie Wiesel, who survived Auschwitz, says deep down man is not only an executioner, not only a victim, not only a spectator, he's all three at once. And one more, and this will be the last one. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, in his book, The, Ar the Gulag Archipelago, Solzhenitsyn himself spent eight years in a Soviet gulag. He said, where did this wolf tribe arise from among our people? Is it our own flesh, our own blood? He said, it is our own. And just so that no one too quickly starts flaunting the white mantle of the just, let each person ask himself, if my life had turned out differently, might I too have become such an executioner? He says, it's a terrible question if one answers it honestly. And so I find it I found it fascinating and frankly, life-changing. Uh, I found it transformative because once you understand that every good person out there or born tabula rasa, that it doesn't take very much for them to do genocide. Mm. And one, one more thing I like to point out to these people is, and of course, a lot of progressive Christians and progressive liberals, of course, react strongly to this. But I mean, in the United States of America, we are at now at least 63 million babies have been suctioned, scraped, or scalded to death. And we sit there and go, yeah, well, we wouldn't be like those other people. We've right. suctioned, scraped, or scalded to death 63 million babies. And then see these people have to go through all these wild things to go, no, no, this is not true. It can't, you know, I mean, uh, it's not bad. It's not really wrong. There's nothing wrong with it. And I was interested to know, by the way, just, I just learned this, you may have learned this too, that in Europe, abortion is illegal after like 15 weeks. I didn't uh, know that. And, and I, I just learned that recently. Uh, and because I, I think a lot of people go, wow, you know, they're so liberal in Europe. It's a abortion's illegal after 15 weeks 
in in the European Union. Um, be, and and thankfully, this has gone way down. You know, I mean, people are moving the number back because it used to be, you know, well, still is actually. There's still people that think it's okay to do, to abort a child that's nine months old, eight and a half months old. They think that's okay. Well, that anyway, this is the yeah. trouble with humankind. And you have these progressive politicians and progressive Christians going, they're they're doing these machinations and the scrambling to try to make it okay to abort children. It's not, and you're going to be judged for it. Yeah. And I think and I don't a, mean by humans, by the way. Right, right. Uh, I'm not, I don't <laughs> I just want to be on the thing be here. Judge. Uh, the Lord, the creator yeah. of the universe, I'm not calling for violence here in any right. way, shape, or form. But there will be, but violence is coming at the judgment because you're yeah. going to be judged for it. Yeah. And I think that's a really powerful example because it's so easy for people to look out in the world and say, hey, I'm basically a good person. You know, I, I give to the charities. I work the soup line. I do this and that. And yet we all, if we don't understand what we're all capable of and what we do, that's a, that is a perfect example to show us. I mean, if if cultures in the future were to look back, I mean, I don't know what it's going to look like in, in a couple hundred years, but I would think, man, looking back at the abortion genocide in America as just this horrific dark point in history, and we're all just blasé about not us, but, you know, the world seems to be kind of blasé. Of course, people, a lot of people are arguing over it right now. But I want to give an example because I, I've been thinking about this topic a lot, and I want to give this example uh, from a, a TV show. And I'm just going to say what it is. It's a show, This Is Us. It's one of the most popular TV shows in the country. Um, I've sort of kind of dipped in and out of it just to kind of see, I think shows like that are a good way of seeing where the main culture is at morally, because whatever those shows are doing and saying and the people are acting like is pretty much going to reflect where culture is at. And so I recently went back and kind of binged a few episodes just to see where the, the family's at and what's that reflecting about morality. And one thing that I have always observed about this show is that you have this veneer of goodness and this veneer of uh, meaningful living and goodness and joy. And, it, you know, every episode makes you cry. But yet they're accomplishing that without God. It's a completely godless show. I've been, uh, as far as I remember, I can't remember one reference to religion, the supernatural, any sort of acknowledgement of a higher power. It seems to be just totally secular, which is just one observation. But one thing that I observed recently, there, there's, you know, I don't want to give too many spoilers away, but there's a situation in which the matriarch of the family has Alzheimer's, you find that out early, and she basically has a talk with all of her kids, and she she tells them, like, don't stop your life for me. Don't, don't do anything that would basically put me first because I want you to live your life. I want you to chase your dreams. I want you to do all of this. And, you know, Clay, I couldn't help but think about... Uh, I understand where she's coming from on that, but but the the scene is meant to make you cry like, oh, these kids are going to go chase their dreams and they can just leave the care of their mother to somebody else and that's so valiant and good. And all I'm thinking of is like, I'm supposed to be crying right now, but I can't squeeze out a tear because this is, this is so sad to me for a different reason. It's sad to yeah. me because essentially what those adult children are being robbed of is the meaningful... Um, that that meaningful experience of caring for your elderly parent of 
putting your own needs aside for a minute, of putting your dreams on hold for a minute, and not getting to experience the depth of what could happen if you did put someone else first for a minute. Maybe those dreams would change and morph into something even greater than you could imagine. But I, I, the reason I brought that example up is because you have this show that's portraying this family as like they, they, are, they are good. These are what good people do. And that, listen, they don't do all bad things. They do good things. They make some good decisions sometimes. It's not all bad. But those those sort of secular qualities of put yourself first they're always present there and that is per- perceived that's it's so good it's supposed to make you cry and what makes people cry really shows where people's hearts are at and so i wonder if you could comment on that idea of they're being like an inwardly good non-Christian. I think a lot of people struggle with the idea. They see this family on TV and, you know, they're basically what most people would say. These are good people. They take care of others. They're they're friendly. They're good neighbors. They, they do things for the community. They get involved. Um, you know, how could you say they're not inherently good if they were real people in real life, which I don't think there are a lot of people like them in real life, but you know what I mean? <laughs> yes, I do know what you mean. Well, you know, it's interesting the question of why do non-Christians do good outwardly? I think we've got to, we confuse niceness with moral goodness. Mm. I have enjoyed asking my audiences when I've spoken classes, I've asked a lot of classes this when I've taught, why do gangbangers stop at red lights? Uh, And and when I first asked that, it was interesting because there was probably 50 or 60 students in this classroom and and they're all quiet. And finally this gal kind of goes, because they don't want to get a ticket? And I said, yeah, I'm sure that's part of the reason. But isn't there a much more compelling reason that gangbangers stop at red lights? Isn't there something a much more pointed and and uh, present reason? Isn't the real reason that gangbangers stop at red lights is because they don't want to be hit by an 18-wheeler and turned into red asphalt? That's the real reason. Well, why do I bring up gangbangers? Because they're doing that. They're stopping at a red light out of self-interest, not out of moral goodness. It's not mm. like they say, we don't care about any other laws, but boy, I'll tell you, uh, red, red light laws, we want, we think those are need to be obeyed. Similarly, Jesus said, he who looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery with her in his heart. Well, uh, so what, what happens if you have a man and a woman who are living next door or who are working, change the analogy, who are working in a company together and they're both married to people outside of the company. And after a while, they begin to flirt with each other. He's flirting with her and she's flirting with him. And of course, it's not, if it hasn't happened already, pretty soon they're having sexual fantasies uh, about each other. Well, if they're flirting with each other and they're sexual, having sexual fantasies about each other, why don't they do it? Uh, what's keeping them from doing it? It's not moral goodness if because they've decided they're not trying they they haven't decided to cherish only their spouse. Why aren't they doing it? Well, it's self-interest, right? I don't want to get pregnant, and he's thinking I don't want her to get pregnant, or I don't want to get a new bring home a disease and have my spouse say, "Well, that's new, honey. Where'd you get that?" Um, and, and I don't want to lose my family. I don't want to lose my reputation. I don't see those calculations are all about self-interest. They have nothing to do with moral goodness. So if you're fantasizing about having sex with someone, assuming that they're available to you, but you're not doing it, it's out of it. it, The reason you're not doing it, it's out of, um, calculations of self-interest. You know, I'm, this isn't going to work out for me. When does somebody actually then do it? Well, they, they do it when they say we have a workaround. 
for all of these things. Our, mm. our spouses are away. Um, he, she won't tell, which is false. Of course it's not, it's just too emotionally. It, it, everybody tells, but anyway, sooner or later we won't tell, uh, you know, I, I, I we're going to use a condom, all of these things. Then, then they, that's when they do it. Similarly, John says in first John three fifteen, he who hates his brother is a murderer. Well, if you hate somebody's guts, why don't you murder them? Well, it's not out of it's not out of moral goodness if you hate their guts. If you hate their guts, why don't you murder them? Isn't the reason that you don't murder them because you say, I've seen those people in the prisons there and I don't want to be in there with them. I don't want to lose my freedom. I don't want to be hanging out with all those people. I don't want to, I could even be executed or I could be, you know, I mean, what if I, in the attempt to murder this person, get hurt or killed myself? And and so, but notice the calculations there have nothing to do with moral goodness. And it's interesting. There's a book entitled, you can, people can Google it if they want, entitled The Murderer Next Door. And what this guy, and I don't remember the exact statistics, but he did a survey of people, a pretty broad survey, and he asked them, if, if you were given a million dollars and knew for sure uh, that you wouldn't be caught, I mean, absolutely for sure, would you kill your neighbor for a million dollars? The overwhelming majority of people said yes. Oh. If they thought they could get away with it, with murder, literally, they would murder. That's why I entitled the book, The Murder Next Door, is he would kill you if he thought he could. This doesn't sound like moral goodness, <laughs> yeah. does it, really? But but so <clears throat> I, I just, uh, we need to understand this, the people, that the reason they're acting in a moral, what we would consider a moral manner, is because of self-interest not because of moral goodness. And I always like to kid people, how many of us got out of junior high without being an adulterous murderer? I didn't. I hated kids and kids hated me. And I don't think I need to explain to anyone the adulterous part of a junior high school boy's mind. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I couldn't say sometimes, well, maybe if you were homeschooled, you got out, you, you avoided that. But <laughs> otherwise, I don't see it anymore. So some people are going to hear that answer and they're going to object. They're going to say, well, if non-Christians are not inwardly good, then why do they do so many good things? Like just kind of we mentioned like that TV show. There are a lot of non-Christians who work soup lines, who get involved in the community, who try to do good politically, you know, as far as whatever their definition of good is, or they uh, do environmental work. So um, doesn't that sort of, you know, play devil's advocate here, doesn't that sort of mean that people are basically good? Like maybe there are some people like that? You know, it's interesting. And that's where my book, Immortal, uh, how the fear of death um, uh, drives us and what we can do about it. Uh, that's where the book Immortal comes in. And and the thing is, is people are doing, they're doing good things because of what are, and I didn't coin this for, term, symbolic immortality projects. Uh, the guy that coined it was Ernest Becker, who wrote a book uh, in 1974 entitled The Denial of Death, uh, and it won a Pulitzer, by the way, and and it has hugely influenced psychologists, So, and I'm a non-Christian psychologist, sociologist, anthropologist, uh, and many philosophers are hugely influenced by this. And Ernest Becker in his book The Denial of Death said, the idea of death, the fear of it, haunts the human animal like nothing else. It is the mainspring of human activity, activity designed largely to avoid the fatality of death, to overcome it by denying in some way that the, it is the final destiny of man. Uh, I couldn't agree with him more. Uh, Irving Yalom. Now, Brecker is not, not a Christian. 
not even slightly. Uh, pretty sure he was an atheist. Irving Yalom, in, who was a professor, who is, well, now emeritus, professor emeritus of uh, psychiatry at Stanford University, not a Christian. He wrote this in his book, Staring at the Sun, Overcoming the Terror of Death. He says, um, as Gilgamesh speaks for all of us, he's talking about the epic of Gilgamesh. He's talking about the epic of Gilgamesh. And he writes, uh, and he says, as he feared death, so do we all, each and every man, woman, and child. For some of us, the fear of death manifests only indirectly, either as generalized unrest or masqueraded as another psychological symptom. Other individuals experience an explicit and conscious stream of anxiety about death. And for some of us, the fear of death erupts into a terror that negates all happiness and fulfillment. Death as Yalom continued, he says, itches all the time. It is always with us, scratching at some inner door, whirring softly, barely audibly, under just under the membrane of consciousness, hidden in disguise, leaking out in a variety of symptoms. It is the wellspring of many of our worries, stresses, and conflicts, and it is the wellspring of many of the good things that we do because people want to live on. People desperately want to live on, and they think they can live on symbolically. And Ernest Becker, as I said, he, he coined the phrase symbolic immortality projects, that they want to live on. And so that's what people are doing. Uh, people, And so notice, you, if, you're, if that is the human condition, and I'm telling you, um, the, you can look at one. So, so if you look at my book, Immortal, uh, behind me there, uh, I'm telling you that if you study what these psychologists, sociologists, anthropologists now believe, they believe that the fear of death is causing people to do almost every single thing they do. Mm -hmm. And so being nice, you want to be remembered, right? You want to be remembered for being a nice person. Uh, helping people, you want to be remembered as being someone who can help people. Uh, and so, uh, and, and by the way, scripture agrees with this. Jesus, or in Hebrews chapter, in Hebrews chapter two, verses 14 and 15, the scripture says that Jesus shared in our humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death. And that is the devil and free those who all their lives are held in slavery by their fear of death. Notice the scripture agrees with these atheist philosophers, psychologists, anthropologists, and that is people are terrified by death. So they're doing symbolic things, trying to live on through having children, for instance, uh, and raising them up and having them be successes because they're going to live on through their children, although they're not. Um, you know, your children are only half you. Their children are only a quarter you. Their children are only 12.6% you. After 20 generations, they're only 0. 0.00004 for you. But it's worse than that. Genes travel over in blocks. Uh, and uh, uh, so some are regressive and some are dominant. There could be none of you in just a few generations. But one more thing about this. I love asking uh, students, how many of you, and I've asked many people this, how many of you know the first names of all four of your great-great-grandparents? How many of you know the first names of all your great-great-grandparents? Uh, and, and no one does. I mean, I think three students out of everybody, every class I've asked is, I do, raise your hand. No one else does. But then I ask them this follow-up question. I say, do you care? No one cares. Not one student has ever gone, I care. That's very important to me. You're not going to live on through having children, but people think they are. Mm. Plato, by the way, said this. He says, for I am persuaded that all men, 
do all things for the sake of glorious fame of immortal virtue. And the better they are, the more they desire this, for they, they are ravished by the desires of the immortal. One more quote, Michael Shermer, because I, you think, oh, well, you're just quoting, you're picking around. Michael Shermer, the founder of Skeptic, and editor of Skeptic Magazine. Michael Shermer, listen to what he says. We live on through our genes, our families, our loves, our friends, and our work and our engagement with others, our participation in politics, the economy, society, and culture, and our contributions, however modest, to making the world a little bit better than it was yesterday. Um, Albert Einstein said, our death is not the end if we can live on in our children, and so on. In other words, Atheists are agreeing, atheist psychologists, psychiatrists, even just the Michael Shermer, the founder of Skeptic Magazine, agrees that people are doing things so that they can live on. And it's amazing how much this explains all of these moral goodnesses. In fact, Becker even says a guy might even jump on a grenade if he believes that what he's doing is supremely valuable. And by the way, I Googled that many years ago, jumping on a grenade, and I found some ex-Marine and says, who among us hasn't fantasized about doing something like that? Uh, something supremely meaningful. Fantasized about jumping on a grenade? Well, you know, it's the only way to a guaranteed way of getting a Congressional Medal of Honor is jumping on a grenade. Mm. The trouble is only one guy's ever survived it. So uh, all the others have gotten their Congressional Medal of Honor posthumously. Yeah. But, but anyway, the point of the matter is secular psychologists and philosophers and anthropologists are going... People are doing this because they're afraid of death. And if you, and that is the human condition, right? You wake up, you, one day you realize, you know, I'm going to die. And that drives your behavior. And that's not tabula rasa. Knowing you're going to die is not tabula rasa as much as people want to believe that it is. So I'm just trying, again, I'm just trying to play devil's advocate here, looking through history. And I think a lot of people would point to Gandhi and say, look, there's an example of a good, of a good person who wasn't a Christian. What, what, yeah. what do you say to that? He's the classic example of the good non-Christian. See, you can be a good person and be a non-Christian. I've got news for everybody. Gandhi wasn't a good person. Gandhi went to bed naked with his nieces, as in two of them, like every night. He only interrupted going to bed naked with his nieces to go to bed with other women, including other men's wives. In fact, he even went to bed naked with a relative's not wife. And some of you may be going, I've never heard anything like that. Google it. Google's really powerful. You should try it sometime. Um, but so he was not a good non-Christian. People are always looking at things and going, well, for instance, climate activists, aren't they good people? Well, other than it being virtue signaling, this, this is a way of living on. As Jane Fonda put it, she says, climate activism saved me from depression uh, wow. because people need to go, I'm going to go on somehow, so I'm going to do something good. The trouble is, is when it comes to doing this, this good thing of climate activism, by the way, I think we should take care of the planet. Okay. So don't. Right. Nobody's <laughs> don't, saying, you know, yeah. I'm not saying that we shouldn't take care of the planet. I recycle. I even drive to the dump with, with that stuff that can't just go out in the trash anyway. So that it goes in the right place. Anyway, uh, is it really, is climate activism really about a deep and abiding love for generations of people that you're never going to meet? Is that what's really going on? God, I love all these people in the future because even even the most uh, you know aggressive of climate activists. Now let's scratch that. Um, 
the trouble with climate activism, the trouble with climate activism is it's a way of, like I say, virtue signaling. And it's a way of saying, see, I'm going to live on. I'm going to live on because I'm doing this wonderful thing. So a lot of things that people are taking as moral goodness is really about self-interest. And it's not a love for future generations that I'm not going to meet. Mm. Uh, in my book, I tell the story kind of in that Gandhi vein here. I, I tell a story of a, a Buddhist who would go out and find homeless people and he would bathe them and feed them and clothe them and doing really dedicating his life to take care of these homeless people. I'd seen it on a, I don't know if it was a Facebook video or something. And I juxtaposed that with a babysitter I had when I was a little girl who was a church member. I assume she was a professing Christian. I don't know that for sure, but I assume she was. And she was vicious. She was really mean. And so I wonder if people aren't going to be hearing us talk and say, yeah, but what about all those mean Christians or the, even the Christians who have done really evil, I, I should say professing Christians who have done evil acts in the name of Christ throughout history. Um, so what about that? What about Christians who do evil things? Well, that's a that that's a huge one, of course. And first, some Christians do evil things. Uh, secondly, uh, and I've got a blog entitled "Most Christians Aren't." If you go mm. to ClayJones.net, most Christians aren't. And I use Matthew chapter thirteen in the parable of the sower. And Jesus says that you know the sower went out to sow, and some of the seeds fell on the path. And you know he says that the birds came and ate them, and so the gospel didn't sink into them; they weren't good soil. But then there's the weedy soil and there's the rocky soil. He says seeds fell among the weeds, the soil where there were weeds, but the weeds grew up and choked the choked out the, the good plant, choked out the wheat. The trouble with that, Jesus said, is that the weeds were the cares of this world and the cares of the world choked the message in that person so that it didn't bear fruit. And then there's not, then there's also the rocky soil and the rocky soil. The trouble with that is, is that people would receive the word with joy and the trouble with the rocky soil was, but it didn't have deep roots. And so what happened was as soon as any kind of persecution or, or difficulty started coming along, they the, the plant died because it didn't have good roots. Uh, and then, of course, there's a good soil. And the good soil was the people that respond to God's word and they embrace it and they start doing what they're supposed to do. And they, they end up producing all kinds of fruit. But notice of the four places that the seed landed, that it only bore fruit in one of those four places. And you have a tremendous amount of people out there who say they're Christians, but they're really, they're, they're, they're among the rocky, they're in the rocky soil or in the weedy soil. The cares of this life are springing up and choking the word. But we have a tremendous amount of people then uh, that are all of them, those three, the yet not the path group, but the other three made a profession of Christ to Christ. They said, I'm a Christian. And then something happened where they really weren't a Christian. Uh, and so here's, here's Jesus saying that. And then Jesus goes on and tells another parable. And it's the parable of the guy who had um, a, a field and they came to him. His servants came to him one day and said, uh, somebody has sowed weeds among the wheat. And Jesus said, an enemy has done this. And he later then says, the devil has done this. An awful lot of people who claim to be Christians are really Satan's kids. Mm. Um, they're not, they're among, they're in the field. They're in the field, but they're really Satan's kids. Uh, and so those aren't good, real Christians either. I do have a blog on the Crusades, by the way. I don't mean to keep doing this, but I have a blog on the mm -hmm. Crusades. We got some by good blogs way. on there. So you got to send uh, every, everybody's got to go over claydones.net uh, Clay for all these blog posts. You definitely want to check them out. Go ahead, Clay. Sorry. Thank you. That's okay. But the thing about the Crusaders, most of the Crusaders weren't Christians. 
They were not. Martin Luther, in fact, said there probably wasn't five Christians in the entire Crusader army, yet they all want to bear the name of Christ. And I think that Martin Luther is exactly right, is that people will like people like to identify with Christianity. Jesus said that Satan sows people among the Christians that ident- self-identify as Christians, but they're really his kids. Uh, and so... <clears throat> Uh, Many people just simply who call themselves Christians are not Christians in the first place. Now, what would you say to somebody who might say, hey, that's just what's called the no true Scotsman fallacy. So what the no true Scotsman fallacy is, is it's a kind of logical fallacy that combines some equivocation. So like redefinition of words, a little bit of begging the question. So it might look like somebody, I've gotten an example here from online. This isn't my example, but it says, you know, suppose I assert that no Scotsman puts sugar in his porridge. And so you counter this by pointing out that your friend Angus likes sugar with his porridge. And then you say, ah, yes, but no true Scotsman would put sugar on his porridge. You can see where I'm going here. Somebody could maybe accuse us of saying, well, you're just doing a no true Christian would do yeah. that. So how would you answer that? Yes, that's true. And, and or that's what they say, but uh, that's mistaken. And the reason it's mistaken is the Bible gets to tell us what a Christian is. Mm. A Scotsman is pretty much someone who was born in Scotland of, uh, well, we could take it maybe a little further and say of Scottish descent. Uh, but a Christian, the Bible gets to tell us what a Christian is. And for instance, in 1 John 3, 9, it says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. And so, uh, in fact, it goes on, and I, I quoted this verse in another context, he who hates his brother is a murderer, and that you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. But back to the passage about, about that a Christian doesn't go on sinning. The, John isn't saying that a Christian never sins, or I'm not a Christian, I sin all the time, but I don't make a practice of sinning. In other words, I'm trying not to sin, and because and I and I have to be that way because God's nature abides in me and won't allow me to not be that way. Uh, the Holy Spirit's in there going, "Don't do that," or after I've done it, going, "That was really bad. You need to get on your knees and repent," and oh, and so on. And uh, you know, I mean, uh, sometimes I, I know one guy that. You know, I mean, he he had a naked picture of his girl, his former girlfriend. He's married. He has a naked picture of his former girlfriend. Now, I understand why he would want to have a naked picture of a former girlfriend. But what I don't understand is why, after he looked at it, he didn't go, this is wrong, and throw it away. Uh, he kept it so he could look at it again. One day, his wife found it. That's how this all came out. Thanks. That wasn't good. Uh, but. But I'm just saying, as for me, I've made decisions where, like, for instance, I'll just give one. I'll be very personal here. Um, I made a decision years ago that if I ever clicked, intentionally clicked on a picture of a naked woman, that I would fast for two days, no calories for two days. Well, I got news for you. Uh, years ago, there was a couple of times that I fasted, and then I went, it's not worth it. What I mean is, is I've mm. taken steps to not be that kind of a person. Because of what? The Holy Spirit's got, you can't be this. You can't keep doing this. But anyway, so our world is full of people who self-identify as Christians, but aren't really Christians. Yeah. Well, as we as we close out this episode, we've talked a lot about the problem, right? The problem being human sinfulness, human selfishness, uh, original sin, inherited sinful nature. I mean, this is kind of our default position as humans. But I'd love to live, leave us with a little bit of hope. So, Clay, what is the ultimate answer to human sinfulness? You know, 
Yes. The ultimate answer, of course, is Jesus. But let me back up just one. I want to just say this. Christianity is the answer, but people go, oh, I'm not like you. We don't need Christianity is a crutch. And so before I give the answer, which you're asking for, uh, let me just quote to you Duke professor of philosophy, Alex Rosenberg, who wrote a book entitled The Atheist Guide to Reality, uh, Living Life Without Illusion. This is how he concluded his book, and I quote this in my book, Immortal. Rosenberg says, Epicurus wasn't right when he argued that understanding the nature of reality is by itself enough to make a person happy. Alas, some people do get everything right about the universe and our place in it and remain dissatisfied. Now, here's the last sentence of his book, An Atheist Guide to Reality, Living Life Without Illusions. He says, take a Prozac or your favorite serotonin reuptake inhibitor and keep taking them until they kick in. Uh, so here you have an atheist professor of philosophy going, it doesn't, this is not enough. Don't let anybody kid you. So his answer is take drugs to get over the fact that you're afraid of death. Now, more pointedly to your question, let me um, back up. I don't know what's happening with my, just my nose is itchy today. Anyway, <laughs> uh, anyway, Here's the real answer. The real answer is Jesus offers true immortality. And I think, and I'm going to now quote another atheist who agrees with that. Uh, Paris philosopher, atheist philosopher, Luc Ferry said, what we would like above all is to be reunited with our loved ones. Um, and if possible, with their voices, their faces, not in the form of undifferentiated cosmic fragments, such as pebbles or vegetables. In this arena, Christianity might be said, have said to use its big guns. It promises us no less than everything that we would wish for, personal immortality and the salvation of our loved ones. He says, Christianity turns out to be stronger than death. And he's not alone. Sam Harris says, atheist Sam Harris says, there's no better story to tell someone than, than your child who just died of cancer. You're going to see them again. They're going to be in heaven. Um, and uh, other atheists agree that this is the, the, the best the best answer, the best answer um, to the fear of death is Christianity. Now, Luke Ferry, Vetti, if you went on and, and uh, he says, oh, of course, I don't believe Christianity is true. Well, that's too bad because our hope is that Christianity really is true. Jesus really was raised from the dead and we're going to live by trusting in him and doing his will. We're going to live forever and ever and ever and ever. And guess what? You can be born again, and then you will no longer just simply be a member of Adam's family and thus inclined to sinfulness. You can be born again. You can be a new person. And this is really, truly, uh, that's what, that's the hope. There it is. That's the gospel. The good news yeah. is, and, and our bodies, it says in Philippians chapter three, verses 20 and 21, that the Jesus Christ is going to transform our body to be like his glorious body. We're going to have, we're going to have renewed bodies. And that is what this great promise of salvation is about. And you can be changed and be inwardly good. Again, I'm not saying that that means you're not going to commit sins. I'm just saying, but you can no longer be the selfish person that you were before you knew Jesus, mm. because you can become, as, as it says in Romans, you can become obedient from the heart. And as John said, no one who abides in him continues to sin because God's nature abides in him and he cannot go on sinning because he's been born of God. And that that's the hope. But again, Eternal life is the big thing. So you're not scrambling to try to do these immortality projects. You're not scrambling around trying to do that because 
you're working for God, you're working for the creator of the universe, and he's going to reward you. Uh, so you don't need to do outward things to get the attention of humankind. And that is the Christian hope. And it is great hope, and I love that First um, John is such a great book to read about sin. I love this part that says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I want to thank my guest, Clay Jones, today for this great discussion. Go to claydjones.net for lots of articles on things like the Crusades, the Canaanite Conquest, Immortality Projects, Why Does God Allow Evil? Clay tends to tackle those really really tough and sometimes dark questions, so go to claydjones.net. Again, if you're watching on YouTube, click subscribe and click the bell icon to be notified every time we release a new video. If you're listening on audio platforms like iTunes, Google, Spotify, it helps so much if you leave a five-star review. And if you saw this post on social media, please share it out. Click like, leave a comment, share it on your social media newsfeed so that more people can find us and hear this message that we have. Thank you so much for watching and for listening and we'll see you next time.